Hello, welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. Today our guest is Nir Eyal, the author of numerous best-selling books including Hooked and the one today I'm most interested to talk about which is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Hey, man, great to have you here. Fascinating book. As you may know, and our guests certainly know, we carefully curate every week who we want to have on the On Leadership series. This is now the world's largest subscribed to and accessed weekly podcast dedicated to leadership. So as we talk about being indistractable today, I'm going to be especially interested to hear how can leaders, people who have just, you know, the most demands of anyone in life, they're probably parents or perhaps their spouses, they certainly have personal lives, and they have an unprecedented level of, you know, focus and demand on their attention. How do leaders help to build this competency around being indistractable? Before you answer that and go there, I'd love to have you take a couple of minutes and orient our listeners and viewers to your journey. How did you become a best-selling author? Why are these topics so passionate to you? And what motivated you to write both Hooked and Indistractable? Yeah, so I am what you call a behavioral designer. So I use the psychology behind how certain products are built to help people, number one, build the kind of products and services that can become more habit-forming. So my first book uh, came out of a course I taught at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford and the design school there. And that book, Hooked, was all about how we can use the psychology that companies like Facebook and Google and Instagram, all these big tech companies use to make their products so engaging. What if we could make all sorts of products the kind of things that are more engaging, more habit-forming? And that's exactly what's happened in the past five years since that book was published. Companies like Kahoot, uh, the world's largest educational software, gets kids hooked onto in-classroom learning. Companies like Fitbod get people hooked to exercising in the gym. One of my clients, the New York Times, uses the hook model to get people hooked to reading the newspaper. So we can use the hook model to get people hooked to healthy habits. Now, there's also a flip side. And that flip side is that sometimes products are designed to be so engaging that they can become distractions. And so that's what led me to write Indistractable because I am so well aware of how these techniques are used, I wrote the book about it after all, that I wanted to explore the, the other side of the equation in terms of why is it that sometimes we go off track and become distracted from one thing or another. And for me, it was a very personal journey. Uh, it took me five years to write this book, frankly, because in the beginning, I kept getting distracted from one thing or another. I, I couldn't focus. And, I, and it was, ironically enough, it was the fact that I had become successful with my first book. Uh, writing that first book was relatively easy because I, I wasn't getting a lot of emails and, and, and demands on my time. And the more successful I became, the less I could have time for the thing that made me successful in the first place, the research and the writing. And, and so not only was it something that took a toll on my uh, professional career, I also noticed that it, it took a, a toll on my personal life and my, and my family life. I remember uh, shortly after Hooked was published, I had an afternoon planned with my daughter. And we had this beautiful afternoon plan, just daddy and daughter time. And my daughter and I had this, this book uh, that daddies and daughters could use to you know, get closer to each other, different activities that, that, that we could play with each other. And one of the activities in this book was to ask each other this question, that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you her answer because when she answered, 
I was busy looking at some silly thing on my phone, some work email, or I don't know, some, some ping or ding on my phone, and I couldn't pay attention to her. I said, oh, honey, just wait one quick minute. I just need to do this one thing. And she got the message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And by the time I looked up for my device, she had left the room. Uh, and, and so I remember that incident, and that's really what caused me to reassess my relationship with distraction. Uh, that it was something that I, I wanted to stop uh, doing. I wanted to, to, to finally become the kind of person who did what they said they were going to do. I was embarrassed that I didn't live with personal integrity. And so whether it was with my personal life, whether it was with my, my family, my work, or in terms of focusing on myself, you know, day after day, I would say things like, oh, I'm definitely going to exercise today. And I didn't, or I'm definitely going to eat right. And I wouldn't, or I'm going to work on that big project and stay focused and do what I said I'm going to do. And yet I wouldn't. And I would constantly lie to myself one day to the next. I remember my to-do list, but I have all these things on my to-do list. And then, you know, half of those things would get recycled from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's just a horrible feeling. So that's when I decided that if there was a superpower that I would want, I would want the power to become indistractable because I think becoming indistractable is the skill of the century. It is something that all of us need as this macro skill to help us make sure that we can live the kind of lives we want to live. You know, Nir, that story with your daughter is just shameful parenting. That has never happened to me with my three boys. <laughs> right. You know, I love you should say that. I actually told that story to a friend of mine. And so he was curious what his daughter would say. And so he asked his daughter, we have, we have kids of similar age. And so he asked his daughter, he said, honey, what superpower would you want? And she said, Daddy, I want the power to talk to animals. And he said, oh, that's interesting. The power to talk to animals. Why is that, honey? And, he's, and she said, so that when you and mommy are on your phones, I'll have someone to talk to. Ah. Yeah, yeah. We, we've all been there. That's sobering. Right? That's sobering. I, I liked how also that you openly disclose after writing the book Hooked, which kind of took the consumer technology packaging, you know, world by storm. There were a couple of companies that adopted the ideas of Hooked into their design, and you chose to invest in them because you were so kind of proud but transparent that it was working. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, my publisher originally when I when I uh, started asking uh, my agent, my publisher about uh, the idea for Indistractable, the original idea was, you know, why don't you write Unhooked? And that is exactly not the idea behind this book. I am not uh, a Luddite. I love technology. Technology is wonderful. And to be honest, you know, originally my, my, my knee-jerk reaction when I kept getting distracted was to blame the technology. At first I said, oh my goodness, maybe I've uh, unleashed Pandora's box here. Maybe it's, it's all technology's fault. And it, in fact, I read every book I could find on the topic and many of them said the same thing. They said, you know what? It's all technology's fault. If you just put away the technology, if you just stop using using technology, go on a digital detox, take a 30-day, you know, do this 30-day digital detox plan, that'll be the solution to the problem. And, and in fact, I followed that advice. I, I got myself a flip phone uh, that had no apps on it. I bought a word processor with no internet connection. And I thought, okay, if it's the technology's fault, finally I'll be able to focus. And it didn't fix the problem at all. Right, I would I would sit down with my word processor with no internet connection and my flip phone. And I'd say, okay, now I'm going to stay focused. Now I'm going to say what I I'm I, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. But there's that book I've been meaning to read. Maybe I should do a bit more research, or let me just clean off my desk real quick, or you know I'll take out the trash, or let me just go get a snack. And I kept getting distracted, and so it couldn't have been that the root cause of the problem was the technology. And in fact, 
you know, distraction wasn't invented, uh, didn't, didn't start occurring with the iPhone or Facebook. Distraction has been with us since time immemorial. Plato, 2,500 years before the, the iPhone, talked about distraction. He called it akrasia, the tendency that we all have to do things against our better interest. So it's not technology's fault. And I think that is what we hear many days, uh, many times you know, espoused by the media, that it's all tech's fault. And it turns out that is just not true. That is just the proximal cause, not the root cause of the problem. And I think the root cause is much more interesting and, and much more expansive because look, the fact is we can't just stop using technology, right? How do we, you know, if you stop using your, your email account or your Slack account for 30 days, you're going to get fired from your job. That's not practical. And it doesn't address the root cause of the problem. Near expand on that idea of root cause versus proximate cause, because I wasn't familiar with the idea of proximate cause. Uh, riff on that for a moment. Sure, yeah. So the idea here is that whenever there's a problem that we encounter, you have the surface level analysis, and then you have the deeper analysis. And right. so the metaphor I like to use is if you think about the game of pool, right? If you ask yourself, what makes one of the colored balls go into a pocket when you play a game of pool, you could say, well, it's the white ball, right? Isn't it the white ball that, that hits the colored ball that makes it go into the pocket? Well, yeah, but that's the proximal cause. The root cause is not the stick. It's not the ball. It's the player. If you take the player outside of the equation, then the, the, that, that behavior, that action doesn't occur. And I think the same metaphor applies for distraction that every generation has had its scourge of distraction, has had its moral panic around one thing or another. Today, it's technology. Before that, it was the television or the radio or the comic book or the novel. I mean, all of these things, there was a moral panic that these technologies, these things were melting our minds and, and uh, harming us. And of course, the, the answer is never quite so simple that these things are nothing but proximal causes. They are tools. And so what I wanted to provide is a tech positive approach and to show people that we are much more powerful than we think. That in fact, we can get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. Nir, in the book, you write about this premise that most of our behavior is based on a desire to escape pain or conflict. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I think a good place to start to understand distraction is to understand what is the opposite of distraction. So the opposite of distraction, think for yourself for a minute, what would be the opposite of distraction? Most people would say the opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not true. That in fact, the opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the entomology of both words, traction and distraction, both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N. So, uh, so th that, that word is action. So traction and distraction both end in the word action. So traction is defined as any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do. Now, this is really important, this dichotomy, for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. Let me show you an example. So I used to, before I, I wrote this book and, and changed my life using these techniques, I would oftentimes sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now it's time for me to do what I said I'm going to do. Here I go. I'm going to stop procrastinating. I'm going to work on that big project. I'm going to stay focused. Here I go. But let me just check email real quick. Let me just uh, do that easy thing on my to-do list real quick. Let me get, get myself going, be productive with a few of these other tasks. And I would argue 
that checking email, checking that Slack channel, even though it feels productive, that's not work, that's pseudo work. Because you see, distraction is really deceptive. Distraction tricks you into thinking that something is important when it isn't. And what we do when we prioritize these tasks, like email and checking Slack channels, checking the news, thinking we're being productive, thinking we're doing something that we should be doing when we're really not intending to do that behavior, when we're doing it out of, out of a, 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 a something that is a distraction rather than traction, we are prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. So anything can be a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time. And I would argue that checking email when you said you would work on that big project is even a more dangerous distraction than playing a video game or checking Facebook. At least when you do those things, you know that you're slacking off. When you trick yourself into checking uh, email when you said you would work on that big project, you're, you're, you're unaware that you're getting distracted. So anything can be distraction. I would also argue that anything can be traction that there's nothing wrong with checking uh, Facebook or Instagram or watching a video on YouTube or enjoying a, a, a movie on Netflix. None of these things are evil. They're not melting your brain. There's nothing harmful about them. If you use them on your schedule with intent, that's the big defining trait. So if you can think about it in your mind, you've got traction to one side, you've got distraction to the other side. Now, what pulls us towards traction or distraction? Triggers. Triggers prompt us to all actions, and there are two types of triggers. We have what's called internal triggers and external triggers. External triggers, this is what we tend to blame when we talk about distraction. It's the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things that can lead us towards traction or distraction based on whether it's something we plan to do or something that takes us off track from what we plan to do. So there's a lot we can do to master to, to hack back those external triggers, but it turns out in my five years of research, that is not the root cause of distraction. That most distractions do not originate outside of us. It's not the pings and dings. Most distraction originates from within us. And this leads us to your question around this discomfort that leads us to do things we didn't intend to do. This is the root cause of distraction. This is the answer to Plato's 2,500-year-old question of why do we do things against our best interest? Why do we get distracted? To understand the answer to that question, we have to actually go a layer deeper, to really start from first principles, to ask ourselves, not only why do we get distracted, why do we do anything and everything? What is the nature of human motivation? Now, most people will tell you that human motivation is about carrots and sticks. We've all heard this. This is called Freud's pleasure principle, that everything we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Turns out, however, neurologically speaking, that is not true. That we do not do things for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but rather everything we do, everything we do is about the desire to escape discomfort. Now, we know this to be true physiologically. Think about it. If you go outside, and it's cold, that's not comfortable, so your brain tells you to put on a jacket. If you go back indoors, now it's too hot, that's not comfortable, so you take it off. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs, so you eat, and if you eat too much, now you're stuffed, oh, that doesn't feel good, you stop eating. So physiologically, this is, this is called the homeostatic response. Everything we do is about a desire to escape discomfort physiologically. The same truth occurs when it comes to our psychological reactions. So for example, when you're feeling lonely, check Facebook. When you're uncertain, Google it. 
When you're bored, you check sports scores, stock prices, the news, Pinterest, Reddit, all of these products and services we use to escape some kind of uncomfortable sensation. So what this means, if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, even by the way, the pursuit of pleasure, if you think about it, craving, desire, wanting, lusting to feel good, there's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically that is exactly what is going on. So if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that therefore must mean that time management is pain management. That if we don't fundamentally understand what is that discomfort we are looking to escape, we will always succumb to one distraction or another. So the first place to start on our journey to becoming indistractable is to understand and master the internal triggers that so often lead us towards distraction. Nir, that was fascinating. You also share a concept or an assertion in the book that most people prefer doing over thinking. I think that's an especially right. relevant term to a lot of our listeners and our audience that are leaders and companies that, you know, uh, that need to think more, need to be more deliberate and more strategic in their thoughts, uh, but also have a bias to action. Talk about that assertion and why is that kind of an age-old struggle inside companies? Yeah, so every job has some proportion of reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work is the phone calls, the meetings, the emails, the Slack notifications. That's all reactive work. And to some degree, you know, some jobs are 100% reactive. If you work in a call center, your job is to sit at a desk, wait for the phone to ring, pick up the call, deal with the call, and put the phone down and wait for the next call. It's a 100% reactive job. But when I speak to, to audiences, when I do my workshops, when I do my consulting sessions, I'm guessing pretty much everyone listening to me today, if I asked you, does your job require you to think? Do you need time to strategize, to plan, to think ahead? I'm guessing almost everyone listening to me right now has some element of reflection in their job. But then when I ask people, well, if that's important for your job, do you have time for that in your day? Is it scheduled? Can I see that time on your calendar? Just as I would see a, a meeting appointment or, or, or uh, an important phone call scheduled, very few people have that time set aside because of this principle that the brain does what has, it, what has provided relief to discomfort in the easiest manner possible. And so what many of us are stuck in the cycle of doing is constantly reacting to our internal triggers, right? When we feel stress, anxiety, uncertainty, fatigue, we habituate ourselves to constantly react and we have no time for reflection. And I'm telling you, in this day and age, if you can be the kind of person who makes time to think in their day, time for reflection, you have a huge competitive advantage over everyone else in the workplace because nobody's doing it these days. Nobody makes time in their day to think about the future, to plan, to strategize. That is a huge competitive advantage because everybody's so busy reacting to things that they have no time for reflective work. And the reason we do that is because it's super easy, right? If you feel stress, if you feel anxious, if you feel uncertain, just check email, check Slack, check whatever, and that makes us feel better. But of course, that only perpetuates this terrible cycle of responsiveness that the worse people feel, studies have shown, the more likely they are to send superfluous emails, to call meetings that don't need to be called. And so not only are they distracting themselves, 
They're distracting everyone else in the workplace as well. And the root cause of all these problems is that we don't have the tools in our toolkit to deal with these uncomfortable emotional sensations. Nir, I want to get tactical in a moment. Share some advice you might give to leaders of teams that you just talked about how people who are easily distracted that end up distracting others. That's a cultural issue. What advice right. would you give to a leader today where she or he wants to build a less easily distracted team of competent professionals? What are some things they could do immediately to be the model of that with their team? Yeah, so the first half of Indistractable is all about things that you can do yourself. And so the best piece of advice, if you want to be a manager that, that manages a team that is indistractable, if you're a parent and you want to raise an indistractable kid, the best thing you can do is to be indistractable yourself. And so that's where the first half of the book is going to be very helpful to you, is to lead by example, right? A leader never says, uh, uh, you know, charge. A leader says, follow me. And so we want to lead by example and become indistractable ourselves to set an example for our kids, for our colleagues, for our coworkers. Be indistractable yourself. That's the first step. Now, that being said, distraction is not necessarily a problem we can solve all by ourselves. Let me give you an example. If you work for someone, and even if you've adopted everything I tell you to do, even if you become indistractable yourself, you're going to feel a lot of benefits in your life. But if your boss calls you, at 9 p.m. on a Friday night and says, I really need you to do something for me right now, is the telephone your boss used at fault, right? Is it the phone call that got you distracted? Or, which is likely the case, is it that you work in a company with a company culture that makes that kind of behavior okay? And so there's a, a section in the book that I think is probably the most important section of the entire book where the key assertion is, that distraction in the workplace is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. It's not the technology that distracts us in the modern American workplace. It's that we work in a culture that abuses the technology at our disposal. And the proof for this is that, you know, one of the companies I heard people complain about most in terms of a product that constantly keeps them distracted, the, the, after email, email was the number one most distracting technology. Number two, was Slack or some kind of group chat app. And so I went to pay Slack a visit. I went to Slack headquarters and I banged on their door and I, wanted to, I, I, I was expecting to see a company where people were very distracted because nobody uses Slack more than the employees of Slack, right? That's not what I found. That in fact, at Slack, they don't struggle with distraction. That if you go to Slack, at six o'clock, the office is shut down, the parking lot is empty. And if you use Slack on nights and weekends, you are reprimanded. That is not something they do there. And in fact, at Slack, at company headquarters, you will see written on the walls in bright pink neon, it says, work hard and go home. Not something you would expect to see at a hard charging publicly traded Silicon Valley company. How did Slack create this indistractable workforce? They did three things. Number one, they allowed employees to have psychological safety. Psychological safety is a very important concept. It's building a work environment where people can raise concerns without fear of getting fired, right? So they have this environment where people can talk about their problems. Number two, they give people a forum to air these concerns. At Slack, interestingly enough, they do this over Slack. They have Slack channels where people can air these grievances with the company, can talk about these concerns and work out some of these issues. 
at other companies. For example, I profile a company called Boston Consulting Group. Many of you know Boston Consulting Group. It's one of the top uh, three strategic consulting firms in the world. They also have these, these weekly meetings where people can talk about these concerns. They, they have these meetings for what they call PTO, predictable time off, where people can talk about these concerns. And then finally, and most importantly, the third trait of these companies that are indistractable is that management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable, that culture flows downhill. So if you work at a company where the big boss is the person checking their device in the middle of the meeting, that sends a message to everyone else around the table that this is acceptable behavior. And it has this secondhand smoke effect that people think, oh, if the boss is checking email, I must have a lot of emails too. And pretty soon we have a meeting where half the people in the room, I call these zombie meetings because people's bodies are there, but their brains are somewhere else. And so we've got to make sure that we exemplify as company leaders how to be indistractable. And I tell you exactly how to do that in the book as well. Nir, I want to save some time to talk about a couple of stories in the book, but you also have a great concept called the 10-minute rule that comes yeah. in this idea of li um, liminal. Is it um, liminal moments? Liminal moments, yeah, right. Would you yeah. expand on that? Sure. So you know, there's four basic steps to becoming indistractable. And I touched on the four points of this compass before. The four basic steps are to master the internal triggers. That's step number one. Step number two is to make time for traction. Step number three is to hack back the external triggers. And step number four is the last resort. This is preventing distraction with pacts. So your question around how do we uh, use these some tactics like the 10-minute rule, which I'll describe in liminal moments, that falls into the first category of how do we master our internal triggers. So let, let me talk about these liminal moments. Liminal moments are the moments between uh, engagement, the moments between moments. So for example, if you went to a meeting and uh, on your way back to your desk, you're checking your phone, there's nothing necessarily wrong with checking email on the way back to your desk as long as when you get back to your desk, you do the task you said you were going to do. You use your time the way you said you would. That's where these moments are very dangerous. Not only can they be dangerous for our productivity, they can also endanger our lives. If you've ever used your phone while waiting for a red light, that is another example of a liminal moment. So what do we do about these things, right? The reason we, are, we succumb to these liminal moments, uh, one of the ones that used to get me all the time was I would open a web page. And while that page was loading, I would open up another web page. All right. In the meantime, we have to identify what is the internal trigger that leads us to distraction. And in many cases, it's just simple boredom or fatigue, uncertainty. It's these uncomfortable sensations. So let me give you a few tactical things that you can do. You know, the, the most important thing is that you understand the strategy. Tactics are what you do. Strategy is why you do it. So the most important four things I want you to take away from this conversation are those four strategies of mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, and preventing distraction with packs. But let's dive into one important tactic for how to master internal triggers. Okay. So when we feel these uncomfortable emotional states, these uncomfortable internal triggers, what do we do about it? Some people will propose strict abstinence, okay? When you have a temptation, whether that temptation is to get distracted by checking email or Twitter or the news when you should be working on a big project or whether you're distracted while you're with your daughter as I was or whether it's that piece of chocolate cake you know you shouldn't have and yet you're tempted to eat it, many, many people will say, well, just say no, right? Like Nancy Reagan used to tell us in the 1980s, doesn't work. Uh, and let me tell you why it doesn't work. Let's do a quick experiment. 
Right now, I, I'm going to ask you to not do something that you have probably not done all day long. So it shouldn't be that hard, right? Do, do me a favor here. Right now, with all your might, I want you to not think about a white bear. What are you thinking about? Nothing but a white bear, right? Because that resistance, that, that telling yourself not to do something makes you ruminate on it more. So telling yourself not to do something, this old advice, is actually really not effective, which is why I'm not a fan of these 30-day digital detoxes. They don't work for the same reason that fad diets don't work. You know, I used to be clinically obese, and I would go on these fad diets, 30 days of no sugar, 30 days of no this, no that. It doesn't work because I didn't get to the root cause of the fact that I didn't know how to deal with these uncomfortable sensations. So what do we do instead? According to acceptance and commitment therapy, one technique that I use almost every single day is called the 10-minute rule. Here's how it works. Instead of telling yourself no, instead of strict abstinence, what you want to do instead is to say, yep, I can give in to whatever distraction I might be tempted by, the chocolate cake, checking email, whatever it might be, in just 10 minutes. Now, many times I'll take out my, I'll take out my phone, I'll say set a timer for 10 minutes, I'll put my phone down, and I can give in to that temptation when that timer runs out. But for those 10 minutes, what I have to do is to surf the urge, as psychologists call it. I have to be present with that sensation. I have to identify what it is that is prompting me to want escape from that discomfort. And I have to explore that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt. What do I mean by that, curiosity rather than contempt? Well, it turns out that when it comes to distraction, people tend to fall into a few different categories. First, we have what we call the blamers. The blamers, they say, oh, it's technology doing it to me. It's uh, Facebook, it's the iPhone, it's, this is my favorite, it's this modern world that's doing it to me. They blame stuff outside of themselves. Then we have the shamers. The shamers take it inside, right? They say, oh, there's something wrong with me. Maybe I have a short attention span. Maybe I'm lazy, maybe I'm an imposter. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And they shame themselves. Neither of those strategies work because the blamers are blaming something that they have no control over. You can't change these technologies. They're not going away. The shamers make it worse because every time we shame ourselves, we spur more of these internal triggers, which make us feel even worse, which make us more likely to seek distraction. So we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. We want to be claimers. Claimers claim responsibility for their actions, not for their feelings. You can't control how you feel. That is not in your control. You can only control how you respond, which is where the word responsibility comes from. You can only control how you respond to those sensations. So as opposed to the habitual distracting action, instead what we want to do is to explore that sensation with curiosity, to ask ourselves, what is it that is driving us towards that distraction? And for those 10 minutes, during that 10-minute rule, we can either sit with that sensation, explore it with curiosity rather than contempt, or get back to the task at hand. And with this simple technique, what you will find nine times out of 10, by the time that 10 minute timer runs out, you will be back doing the thing you intended to do as opposed to getting distracted. So that's only the tip of the iceberg. That's one of many, many techniques I describe in the book. That's great, Nir. Tell me, there's, the book is so well-researched. You share a lot of meta-analysis, you know, kind of like uh, analyses of of studies and such, you debunk some theories in there. I love the story about the flight attendants flying on different um, uh, duration of flights. Will you share that story and kind of relate 
how that is so present in our own lives as parents, as leaders, as friends, people? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's basically three things we can do about these internal triggers. And, and we're making it sound like the entire book is about these internal triggers. Just to be clear, that's only one section. There's only one uh, one strategy out of four. But when it comes to how do we master these internal triggers, another thing we can do, in addition to reimagining the, the trigger itself, which we just talked about with the 10-minute rule, we can also reimagine our temperament. But there are a lot of ways that, that we think about ourselves that are actually very detrimental. Uh, that there's there's been many studies that uh, that that turn out to show that how we think about our capabilities has a direct relationship to our actions. So there's a, one particular study that I think was really in, interesting in that it took uh, two groups of flight attendants, two group of flight attendants who all smoked. Okay, and I, I use uh, the the study of addiction because we hear today that technology is so addictive and that we can't stop doing these things. They're hijacking our brains, and so many times I I look at the research around addictive products, things like cigarettes and drugs, to show that look if we can actually change our minds around these very addictive products like nicotine, like heroin, well then certainly these tactics are going to work with distractions like our email and, and Facebook accounts. So when it comes to this, this particular study that, that you mentioned, they took two groups of flight attendants, both left from Tel Aviv airport. One group of flight attendants was on a flight to New York. The other group on a, a flight attendants was on a flight to London. Now the flight to London is about a three hour flight and the flight to New York is about a 10 hour flight. And they asked these flight attendants who are all addicted to cigarettes, they asked these flight attendants to please rate their level of craving every 30 minutes along this flight, and they did so. And what they expected to find in this study, if nicotine is something that is processed by the body, and the longer it has been since your last smoke, the more you crave it, that's kind of the popular notion of, of addiction, is that the, you know, as the, the nicotine is metabolized, the longer the elapsed time between your next smoke, the more you want it, right? That's kind of the, the traditional theory. So you would expect that after the same amount of time elapsed, both groups of flight attendants would have a spike in their cravings for the cigarettes. But that's not at all what happened. That in fact, it wasn't the amount of time that elapsed since they, they departed, since they had their less smoke that, that uh, caused the spike in, in craving. But in fact, it was the amount of time until they could smoke the next cigarette. So what does that mean? What the, the study found was that 30 minutes before the flight attendants arrived to London, that's when they reported the highest level of craving for these cigarettes. Meanwhile, the flight attendants who were on their flight to New York, they were high above the Atlantic Ocean. They reported very low craving, even though the same amount of time had elapsed. It was only until 30 minutes before the flight attendants who arrived in New York could smoke that they also experienced this spike in cravings. And so what this means is that mindset really matters. How we think about temptation is very, very important. That it wasn't until the flight landed and the passengers were departing, the, that's when the flight attendants were thinking, okay, get off the plane already so I can smoke the cigarette. That's when they experienced the highest level of craving. And it turns out that if we can change our mindset, our viewpoint around these distractions, around our temperament and how we succumb to these distractions, we can greatly alter how we respond to those uncomfortable emotional itches. Nir, we could go for two more hours. This is captivating. I think every leader in any kind of role is dealing with this issue of indistractability and how do we you know, manage these triggers 
our, our time is ending. Tell us what's next for you. What are you working on? What's interesting to you? What are you learning? Yeah, so my mission uh, for, for the foreseeable future here is really spreading the message of how we can all become indistractable. I'll, I'll give you one quick anecdote here that, you know, I really do believe uh, that, that we can change the world using this, this methodology. Uh, I, and, and we've been here before. The reason I'm so confident is that I know we've been here before. I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in the 1980s. And people would come over to our household, even though my parents didn't smoke, we had ashtrays all over our house. Why? Because back then, you know, if, if you remember, if you were, if, if you remember the 1980s, you'll remember that people just expected to smoke in your living room. That's just what people did back then. Uh, today, of course, that's, that's unconscionable. Nobody would just smoke a cigarette in your living room. That'd be very rude. Well, what changed? There's never been a law that says you can't smoke in someone's private residence. What changed was we adopted what's called social antibodies. People made it rude. They made it unacceptable to do that kind of behavior in, in someone's private house. I remember when my mother, who didn't smoke, when she told the friend who came over, look, you know, it, we are non-smokers. That's who we are. We are non-smokers. If you would like to smoke, please go outside. And oh boy, she, the, 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 the friend was so offended that she was asked to smoke outside. Of course, today, no one would dream of smoking in your house. Now this has become uh, the, the, a common uh, you know, social norm. And so that's really what I'm trying to do. I want to create a movement of people who describe themselves as indistractable. Right, the kind of people who say, this is how I choose to live my life. I don't have my time and attention controlled by others. I choose how my time and, contention, and attention is controlled. I choose my life for myself. I am indistractable, just as my mom said that she is a non-smoker. I think this is how we're going to change not only ourselves, not only the lives of our kids, but also change our workplace and uh, I think the world. And so that's my mission for, for the foreseeable future is to spread this message of how we can all become indistractable. So I do, uh, I do a lot of corporate speaking and consulting, uh, as well as a lot of uh, talks at uh, various events. Nir, I love that story. No one smokes in my house, but can you believe someone who came to my home for Thanksgiving brought their 80-pound dog with them and didn't even ask us? <laughs> at the front door, they had this 80-pound dog. We have wow. dogs, but I mean, who brings their dog unless it's like in your purse to Thanksgiving dinner, right? Yeah, so, talk about a distraction. <laughs> phenomenal book. Nir, thank you for joining us. I wish you great success. And I've learned so much. I think the 10-minute rule is going to absolutely be one of my morning routines is I, I, like you, I'm an author and I'm writing a lot and blogging and writing columns and I'm always sort of reaching for my phone as an internal distraction and such and uh, I'm going to be more mindful of that. Thank you for your time today. Very generous of you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nir Ayal. Thank you for joining us on Franklin Covey's current episode of On Leadership. If you're not subscribing, do so by visiting franklincovey.com. Subscribe your friends, your family, all your colleagues. Each week, a new guest, some inside Franklin Covey thought leaders, some external as well. And if you're consuming on podcast, please do so. Rate it, rank it, review it. We'd love to have your feedback as well. I'm Scott Miller. Thank you again for joining us. And we'll see you next week on Leadership.